everyone, and welcome back to the Tennessee Farm to Family podcast. And if this is your first time joining us, we are excited to have you tune in. My name is Tori Marshall, and I am a farm management area specialist for UT Extension out here in Western Tennessee. And one of my jobs is to help farm families kind of take a look at their farming operation from the financial side in order for them to make informed decisions about the future of their farm. And I get the privilege to serve as your host today for this discussion. And alongside me, I have Dr. Charlie Martinez. Charlie, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself? Awesome. Well, thank you, Tori, for having me. Uh, I'm Charlie Martinez. I uh, started here at UT in January of 2020, and my position here is uh, the Farm and Financial Management Specialist with UT Extension, and I'm also an assistant professor in the uh, Agricultural and Resource Department, Agriculture and, Re- Agriculture and Resource Department. I'll get it out one day. Um, it's always a tongue twister to say, uh, but in my research and my extension program is based on farm and financial management stuff, and then also livestock and meat economics. Now, Charlie, you said you started at January of 2020, correct? So right before the pandemic happened. Right before the fun stuff. So you've had a few fun years, to say the least, a few couple years, right? (laughs) Yes, (laughs) (laughs) ma'am. But and now with that, with your role, you've actually had a few opportunities to look at how COVID-19 has influenced certain markets here, specifically in Tennessee, correct? Yes, ma'am. Okay, and that's so with that, we're really excited to have you on here today for the podcast because today's goal for this podcast is to just sort of talk about what happened and what we saw in 2020 with our supply chain pertaining to agriculture. And one of the first things I really think that we've got to do is go back to the very start of this pandemic and work our way down to see what's going on. So, In January of 2020, the CDC confirmed what was the first coronavirus case in the United States, and that was in Washington state, so on the other coast from us. And then from then, everything just really started to escalate with cases continuing to rise. And with that, we started using terms like sheltering in place and quarantining far more than I believe any of us probably ever thought we'd be using in our lifetimes. But with that came a lot of shutdowns and stay-at-home orders, not just in Tennessee, but all over the world. Offices and businesses were shutting down, schools were closing, but a big one is that restaurants were having to close up shop, even if for just a short little while. And so with that, Charlie, can you kind of tell us how all of these closings impacted our supply chain with food products and such and what consumers were seeing during this time? Yeah, so I think the easiest way is to kind of uh, take this one bite at a time, for lack of a better term. And uh, you kind of highlighted, you know, people had to stay at home. There was also schools being shut down as as well as restaurants. And so at that point, it kind of changes the consumer behavior uh, from, you know, from a consumer standpoint. Uh, but then there's also supply disruptions across the supply chain. So not only do we have consumer uh, disruptions, but we have supply chain and uh, production disruptions. And I think the easiest way to just from a macro view of talking about it is that there were supply disruptions across all sectors, not just agricultural agriculture, but other sectors. Uh, you know, we can think about trains and 
uh, people quit flying and, you know, airports having issues. So there was a lot of industries that had been, that were affected by COVID-19. But as we start thinking about uh, livestock and and meat production or livestock production and and meat consumption uh, from the demand side, a lot of folks, since there was no restaurants to go to, um, you know, there was more demand that skyrocketed, that skyrocketed at the, at the grocery store and your local retail stores. And so um, the first thing and from that standpoint is if, as we think about how, how food is processed, food is processed for food industry or for the retail side. Those two types of uh, product are different in terms of how they're prepared. You know, if we think about the, the commercial side, they'll be sold in bulk to, re- to, to restaurants uh, or to grocery stores, but those products are different. And so uh, not, only, not only are they different, they're going to be packaged different, and it just also depends where it's going. And so for, for uh, you know, a company or a packing plant to just switch over and say, okay, we can't sell to restaurants, so let's sell product to the grocery store, that causes a lot of, is- a lot of issues. And so uh, if we think about from that standpoint, then that creates some bottleneck on down the supply chain, especially at the same time while those packing plants were dealing with plant closures due to coronavirus outbreaks or uh, just closing in terms of trying to be proactive and, and trying to say, hey, let's close and let's see what's going to happen uh, and, and not do anything harmful for our employees. And then at the same time, uh, not only were they sending different product to the grocery stores, uh, I don't know if you remember, but there was a thing called hoarding behavior uh, where people were just buying in bulk. Uh, remember that just slightly, just a yeah, little bit. And, even the toilet paper was getting uh, bought out, you know, and people were hoarding that. And so the same thing kind of happened with the meat cases and, and the product that was available at grocery stores. Uh, even with milk and, and eggs and stuff of that nature, if people were staying home, uh, they were just buying everything in case uh, in case they thought there were, there could be a possible run out. And so that's what they were, uh, you know, the behavior from the consumer also caused a lot of issues. And so between the consumer uh, behavior changing and the supply chain issues, all that accumulated to a lot of disruptions across the supply chain. And we're not even talking about, you know, from the beef side, we're not even talking about the feeder calves uh, or the producers that were selling feeder calves at that time. And so just there was a lot of disruptions uh, from every which way along uh, each sector. And especially when we start talking about protein, uh, you know, consumer and producer. So really, it wasn't it wasn't necessarily an issue of no food, period, per se, but more of a disruption in the logistics or food distribution that was really turned on its head. Correct. I would I would. That's what how it's a great way of, of summarizing it. So all this change in demand with schools shutting down and not necessarily needing milk or something in that or restaurants not being able to serve food for their dine-in customers. How did this impact our ag producers, our cattle crop producers? How did this influence them, this change in demand? Right. Um, So I think it's the easiest way is is to kind of think about it by each uh, industry within agriculture. Um, because the critical thing is to remember demand really total demand never really went anywhere. It just was changed in the venue or the channel that they got their product from, you know, food away from home versus uh, food at home. You know, the way that, that, that they were buying uh, their, their food was different. And so if we think about it, demand didn't change, uh, but the, the different channel where they bought it changed. And for an industry, like we just mentioned about supply, about the producer, I mean, about the uh, packing plants, uh, it's very hard to, to alter the channel. And so for ag producers, you know, it was highly publicized about the milk dumping and, and kind of what was underlining that was because, you know, 
a lot of producers depend upon milk or a lot of milk producers depend upon schools to be open. And so, you know, that left them with a surplus whenever the restaurants and the schools are closing. And so they couldn't find alternative sources to sell their product fast enough. And that that's what led into some of the excess dump of or the, the, the dumping of the excess milk. Uh, and that wasn't it's another thing that kind of gets mis you know, a misconception is that it happened across America. In reality, it only happened in certain regions where there was an excess volume of milk being uh, being dumped or was being produced and therefore then had to be dumped. Um, another uh, industry was the poultry and egg industries. Um, again, there was not really a different, there was no really loss in demand, it's just the, 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 the different form. Um, I don't know if you saw it, but over here in Tennessee, what we saw uh, on the eastern side was eggs. Uh, we could not find enough eggs in our in our retail store. And I know some of my friends and family back in Texas, they had issues finding eggs uh, and people in that. And we're talking about product differentiation, eggs that we get like at McDonald's and Chick-fil-A and, uh, you know, Denny's or anything like that, where we eat those eggs. Those eggs are totally different than the eggs that are bought within the retail store. And so the specs that are for, you know, for these two industries was different. So that kind of led to not necessarily a shortage of eggs, but trying to get enough eggs into the grocery store uh, was it was an issue. No, they the actually they actually waived some of those requirements for eggs during yes. this time. So producers yes. could have a alternative for their supply, correct? Yes, yes. And so that and that was that wasn't that was a, a you know immediate relief to try to move the product. Um, and then you know we start thinking about broiler production. Uh, they kind of had you know the same you know bottleneck issue, uh, but that was also a function of you know, hey, we they had anticipated demand, and you know, if we we're gonna put you know breast and rib, uh, you know, rib and breast product, well, some consumers really don't want that in a retail store, so that causes a lot of issues there. Uh, and so I don't know if 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 you saw it, you know, in the you know where you were at that time, uh, but the product availability and the product type that was at the grocery store was really different. It kind of still is different right now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if, if, if a product was being produced that was more mechanized in the poultry industry, you saw a lot more of that instead of like, you know, pulled apart tenderloin product and skin, boneless, skinless products. And so um, while they, you know, they, they altered it, but you, it was probably products that were not common. And so consumers really don't, if they've never really bought it before, it was kind of like, okay, what do I have to do? And so on the poultry side, that kind of, that, that, that the bottleneck that occurred then led to some of the reduction of the of the poultry uh, flock of the national poultry flock being you know you, the, the unfortunate event of a euthanization and, and stuff of that nature and the same kind of result we saw in the pork industry it was publicized pretty widely about having to euthanize some of the uh, some some animals uh, because of hey we have it they're market ready but we can't get them processed and if we hold them longer we lose all value anyway so uh, let's go, we can readjust the, we can readjust our supply chains. And I think it's important to remember that the broiler industry and the pork industry were able to kind of bounce back quicker because of the natural biological nature of those animals, you know, from, from the time that they're ferreled out until uh, they're, you know, hung on the rail or, or their, their egg set versus uh, they're being put into processing. Um, that time frame is really, is shorter compared to the, the beef industry. And so they were able to adjust quicker to uh, to the to the adjustment or to the supply chain issues, um, we saw reduction in herd size uh, from the national herd standpoint, um, and then we also saw a reduction in egg set in the broiler industry. And so that's how they kind of adjusted, and that's what kind of infect, affected our ag producers on, in those industries. But then if we start talking about the beef industry, uh, that's just a whole nother world in itself, simply by the structure of the industry. Um, 
you know, we don't, we don't have as much vertical integration that occurs in the beef industry. And so uh, that led to some of our feeders having to hold cattle longer, uh, which not only made slaughter weights uh, increase because, you know, they were putting more weight on them. Uh, although, you know, they were increasing in weight slowly, they were still getting bigger. And so that led to increased slaughter weights, uh, which then also impacts the, the space availability at the feed yard. And if there's, if they can't move the cattle quick enough out of the feed yard, then there's, you know, there's no space to bring in new, uh, you know, new cattle or feeder cattle. And so then that reduces the demand for feeder cattle. And I think a lot of, you know, us, per, me personally and my family, we saw low, lower prices at that time. And so that, you know, I guess in reality, a lot of these ag producers that, you know, we're at the, at the, you know, we have an egg set and we have, um, you know, farrowing operations and then we have cattle producers. Those are the ones that were kind of stuck with lower prices at that time. And I think all of this was exacerbated also only because of the processing uh, or lack of processing capability at the, at the packing level. And, and I think uh, one of the best things that actually happened was the CFAP uh, program or the Corona food coronavirus food and uh, what was the PSA? I can't remember the P one, but CFAP. Uh, it was the they you know that policy allowed producers to uh, offset the losses that occurred during coronavirus uh, during the heart of the coronavirus period. And I think we've had two official rounds, and then a third round came in that actually did supplemental uh, income for the, the the first round of CFAP. Uh, and so I I think that you know the initial impact for ag producers was lower prices, and therefore it kind of hurt revenue and profitability. But then as we work through it and, and as each industry worked through the supply chain issues and the backlog and the bottleneck, uh, they actually ended up uh, kind of coming out okay. Um, and so that was one thing that I thought, you know, at first it was it was not fun. But then at the end of 2020 and coming into, you know, as we got into 2021, um, you know, those profit losses were kind of, you know, brought back uh, because of the, the supplemental funding from the government. And Charlie, you brought up the topic of euthanasia for pork and poultry producers. And I think this is important to note in this, that this was not a decision that was taken lightly. Right. Our, our supply chains were disrupted so badly during the start of all this, that this was the only option for these producers. They were really in a bind. And I think that's important to note because a lot of times some people think that we don't consider these animals important or in that fashion. So I think that's important to note that supply chains were so badly disrupted that this was the only option we had at this moment. And it was the most humane way to help with this oversupply of animals that we had nowhere to go with. Right. I think you, I think you brought up a good point there. Uh, It's, it's, you know, if you really think about it just from a business standpoint, no, like if, in reality, no one really wants to lose an animal because in the, they're losing money. So this is a, not an option that they really wanted to, to go, resort to. Yeah, but you you mentioned quite a bit there about problems or disruptions in our processing capabilities. Can you kind of touch on that for a second as to what we were seeing during this time when COVID was really at its peak and everything? What was going on in our processing or packing plants? Sure. So if you think about a packing plant, uh, regardless of the, of the protein, you know, poultry, pork, or, or beef, um, if anybody's ever been on a fabrication floor or processing floor, they'll, they'll know that, you know, there's really no room between people. There's not a lot of room between people and they're kind of close together, right? And so that's not conducive for, you know, preventing the spread of COVID-19. And so one, that, that was one of the initial issues was, okay, we got to spread everybody out. 
But so then how do we, how do they, how do they, how do we adjust if we were a packing plant, how do we adjust to spreading out people while still trying to be efficient? So you kind of have to slow down the chains a little bit uh, to try to think about, okay, what products do I need to get off? Um, while also adjusting at the same time to, you know, different, you know, demand or a different type of demand uh, from the retailers. And so if we just think about the personnel issue, you know, we had to increase space. Um, and then during the same time, uh, they started increasing the cost. There was, there was an increasing, um, you know, test being pr uh, provided to, uh, you know, the, the workers at the packing plant. Um, and so we have increasing, increasing the space. We have uh, COVID testing that happens while they're getting dressed up and so that they keep up with that. And so all that, all that accumulates to reduction in time on the actual fabrication floor. And so if we have reduction in time, you know, that's going to reduce the, the amount of output. Uh, and then at the same time, while they're taking these precautions, there were still a lot of outbreaks that were occurring, uh, you know, between each three segments. And so they would either have to close down and then open back up with reduced labor, depending upon, you know, if everybody, if the full workforce, full workforce was back. Um, so they had to deal with a lot of, you know, day-to-day -day issues of, okay, we're open today, but what if we're closed tomorrow kind of a deal because we have an outbreak, you know, that comes back from the testing. And so if you think about it, that just accumulates a slower output from the packing plants, which then, you know, trickles down into the, into the supply chain bottleneck. Um, and so at the same time, you know, I think some of the issues that we saw then are still being worked through today. Um, and with some plants still having issues, having consistent shifts, um, they're, you know, the, the, the labor force that's in the packing plants, uh, you know, they they have the opportunity to also, you know, find other jobs, you know, work at a, you know, a factory or something else. And so that also leaves the packing plant having to compete with them uh, to pay, uh, you know, to keep them there uh, on the shift. And I know some packing plants are having trouble just having enough to fill two shifts. And so if, if you know, that's the, that's the basics that you need in order to be, uh, to be up and running uh, from a packing plant perspective. And so, even though it got really bad there with a lot of shutdowns, uh, as we worked through it, as we worked through it and got to today, you know, trying to find consistent, uh, you know, consistent uh, labor is also becoming an issue uh, now uh, for the packing plants. And it's not just inside the packing plants, it's trucks as well to deliver oh, yeah. these products. That's, that's becoming an issue in today's current markets. I know here in Tennessee, um, there are some feeder cattle uh, producers that are having to find that are struggling to find trucks just from that level, let alone the level of getting you know product from a packing plant to a a retailer. Um, that that's just another issue, and I mean we don't even have to mention the the current issues out in the ports, and then also the input supply chain uh, disruptions that are currently happening as well at the time of this recording. No, that would be a whole other discussion if we started getting into day. that. <laughs> But really, what we're seeing is that this pandemic not only impacted one part of the food supply chain here in the U.S., but multiple parts from the producer to the processors and the packers to ultimately the consumer, whether that was in the grocery stores or at restaurants. You know, I know fast food chain restaurants weren't nearly as impacted as much as those that were the sit-down restaurants, the dining. Yeah, the, the small mom and pop ones. But it's been impacted all the way from the beginning of those products to the very end to the consumer. And this is just what we've seen in 2020 and 2021 now from the impacts of COVID-19. What are we likely to see 
in the future as a result of all that we've just talked about today, not even necessarily what's going on in the very moment, like you said, with input supply chains. Right. So I, I think on the, on the, we just, you know, take each segment. So we'll just start on the, on the consumer side. Um, I think a, a, something that changed in the habits of consumers was more purchases of food through online channels, uh, even for just simply going to get uh, food at the, at the grocery store. I know uh, we currently use the app uh, for Target to, you know, pre-order our stuff and, mm-hmm. and, and for Kroger, um, you know, and then if we think about it on the restaurant side, you know, that kind of affected the consumer base, you know, at first it was, you know, when restaurants open, how willing, how, what was the willingness of consumers to actually go to the restaurant? Did they feel safe? You know, there was those issues. And then as you know, that's one side of it. The other side is there's a group of consumers that they learned how to cook different products that they, they never had to do before. And they might be saying, Hey, I like this, you know, or it's cheaper for me to, you know, go buy something at the grocery store and cook it at home. And they might enjoy that. And so there could be a reduction in the, in the demand at restaurants. Um, there's also been, you know, some changes in, in people finding value of buying, uh, locally sourced products. Uh, you know, we just got through strawberry season over here in Tennessee, and that was a, like an idea where an apple season is currently going right now where people are going, Hey, I can help the local producer. Let's, let's go and let's go buy products there. I think on the processing side, um, I know there's been an uptick in automation or robotic, robotic, uh, technologies to help with, uh, processing. Um, and so that, that, that in theory will help reduce, you know, potential labor shortages in the future, but also, you know, if, if there's only the, the robots are running and, and it only takes a couple of people to manage those robots or the automation, you know, that's, that makes it easier if, if there's another outbreak, for instance. Um, and so then, you know, if we start thinking about, um, the producer side, if we're cattle producers, for instance, we're just now starting to realize, you know, increase in prices and stuff of that nature. And so if, from a production side, you know, from the from a cattle producer standpoint, we're starting to actually move some product and and you know get good prices that are that are quote unquote good for us. Um, then the packing plants they're making adjustments. I know now uh, some packing plants didn't even have a uh, didn't have a what if scenario plan. Like what if we actually have to shut down multiple times over a time duration? How are we going to handle that? So I know that there, there's some plans being put in place there at the packing level, and then. I think the next issue that could come up is, you know, how do we avoid that at the at the retailer level? You know, how do we ensure that we have more products? And I know the USDA has announced recently that they're going to be putting more effort and resources into ag supply chains. Uh, you know, could that come in the form of increased packing facilities or increasing, um, you know, storage facilities, stuff of that nature? Um, I think there's this, you know, made it known that, hey, we, let's look at our supply chains and let's look at the next time this happened, you know, what can we do to avoid, um, you know, hoarding behavior again? And how can we let our consumers and, and the citizens know that there's always going to be, uh, you know, stable food supply? That's not, that's something that we don't need to worry about here. Um, so I think, you know, I think it's going to be interesting moving forward here in the next couple of years of how, how these industries change in response to COVID-19. So there's safe to say that there's still a lot of com- to come and there's a lot of questions that are still going to have to be answered at some point. I think without a doubt, I think you could honestly, you and I could probably sit back down in a year and go through some stuff and there might be a difference in the last 12 that, you know, the, the next 12 months. So but where I are think, we now? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But 
With that, uh, like Charlie said, we could keep going for quite a while on this topic, but I think we will wrap it up. And Charlie and I thank you all for listening today to our Tennessee Farm to Family podcast. And we hope to have you back to learn more from UT TSU Extension.